And let's turn in our Bibles to Second Samuel chapter six this evening. In our journey through the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, we sure want you to have a Bible to follow along with us. There are men coming up the aisles right now. And if you just wave to them or get their attention in some way, they'll spot you and get a Bible into your hands. Second Samuel chapter six. David is now the king over all of Israel, not just the southern uh, tribe of uh, Judah, but the elders of Israel and the people of Israel have now recognized him as the king over all of the land. He has moved the capital uh, of Jerusalem or the capital of Israel, rather, as kind of he was in down in Hebron while in in uh, uh, ruling over Judah and, and Judah alone for a number of years. And he is now established by the time we come to this place in the record, Jerusalem as the capital of the nation of Israel. And now very, very early in David's reign, the Lord is going to drive home a super, super big lesson in David's life. David, at this point, very early in his reign, literally has decades of decision making out in front of him. As the king of the most important nation in human history, he's going to learn something about decision making and what is and isn't important to God. And God's going to drive this point home to him in a very dramatic way, in a way that he'll never forget it for all of all of his life and the lesson that he's going to learn in his service to the Lord. And it's a very important lesson for us in our service to the Lord is that one cannot do the right thing in the wrong way. But in our service to the Lord, we must always do the right thing in the right way. This goes contrary to virtually all that is done in the world today where we are taught and is modeled before us all of the time that the end justifies the means. That if we have a good end or a good goal, then any worthwhile or unworthwhile means of achieving that goal is okay. God looks at that and says, that doesn't work in my kingdom. And, and, and he's going to make that point to him. With the God that we serve... For him to be properly represented, the end must be a right end, must be a good end. And the means by which we get there must also be good. Everything testifies and witnesses to him. Once people know that you and I are a Christian, they don't look at our lives and say they don't differentiate between the ends and the means. If they see us trying to achieve a good end and we try to achieve it in a way that doesn't look like Christ, in a way that is unrighteous, they'll spot that in a moment and they won't take our commitment to Christ or the message that we carry seriously at all. And so the end must be right and the means must be right as well. Even more important in this covenant that that we're in the covenant that's been purchased in the blood of Christ. The end and the means both have to glorify 
the Lord. So David now attempts to do a good thing in a wrong way. And he learns the lesson before the end of the chapter. And this is the lesson that we want to learn. I don't know what it's like for you. I don't even I don't know what your perception is of someone being a pastor or working, you know, in ministry in this kind of capacity. We're all serving the Lord in, in a variety of different ways. But I hit the same thing that you hit in where you are, maybe to a little lesser degree, but it hits all of us. That constant pressure to compromise, to cut a corner. Nobody will know. Hardly anybody will know. And there can come these just strategic times where the devil will just come against us or the world or the flesh and just say, take this shortcut right here. And and by the grace of God, we hold strong in that area and we resist the temptation, though it's a strong temptation. And then for the rest of our life, we're glad that we did. And we can look back later and realize how much damage would have been done. But this is our reality in this fallen world and, it, and the pressure to cut corners in the workplace and in, in relationships everywhere is just growing by the day. And so the lesson is very contemporary uh, for us. And again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. So David in is going to desire to bring what he's desiring to do is to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem that is now the capital. The Ark of the Covenant was kind of the size of like a, a very, very small hope chest. It was made of cedar. It was lined in gold. And the Ark of the Covenant, as we've seen in our journey through the scriptures, represented the very presence of God because it was the lone furnishing of the Holy of Holies, which represented the presence of God. David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant from where it's being housed in a private home to bring it into Jerusalem. And because it represents the presence of God, essentially what David is saying is, I want to make God the center of our national life. I want God to be the center of this nation. When Saul was the king, the Ark of the Covenant sat for decades in somebody's house and he didn't give one single thought to it. Was it a spiritual person? David is at the beginning of building a nation. And when you build a nation, you have a military to build. You have infrastructure, roads, law and order to build. You have food supplies that have to be developed. You have security for your population. There are so many things that are on David's plate now that he's the head of the nation. And yet the, the greatest thing that rises to the top in his mind is all of those things can wait. I haven't become a king to build roads. I haven't become a king to build a military supremely. I've become the king of Israel to make God the center of this nation. And that's the single greatest thing that he wanted to do was to make God the great attention of the nation and the center of the nation. So what he's got here is a goal that is the right thing to do. And the Ark of the Covenant has uh, been in, neglected for many, many decades uh, under Saul. And we see the size here in verse one of 
the group of people that he brings to escort this Ark of the Covenant from uh, the house of Abinadab. And it's a distance of about 10 miles that they need to travel. He, he calls for an honor guard, really, of 30,000 choice men. Maybe most of us wouldn't have gotten invited to it. But we're talking about the most prominent people in the nation. I mean, civil leaders, religious leaders, prominent people. And, a, and a, just a huge number, 30,000. I mean, the numbers alone give us a sense of what a big deal this was to David. And I'm inclined to believe that David invited the choice men, not because he considered them to be greater than, you know, the rank and file in Israel, but in order that they would recognize his heart for the importance of God being at the center of, of the nation even more than the average citizen within the nation. Sometimes when you're given a position of prominence, it's only because... God wants to keep a closer watch on you. You're less trustworthy. I'm completely convinced that God has called me to be a pastor because he couldn't trust me anywhere else in the world. This is a short, short leash calling that I have, and I recognize that. And so this just the sheer numbers communicate how important this was to David. And David arose and he went with all of the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Again, it represented the presence of God. And so they set the ark on a cart. On a cart? We know from the law of Moses when we were going through the Pentateuch, that when God had the Ark of the Covenant built, it was to have four rings, one on each corner, upper corner of the Ark, of the box. And they were to have poles that were to be inserted into those holes, those holders, and the poles were never to be removed from that place. And when the Ark was transported... God determined that it would be transported by the Levites. It would be transported by members of the tribe of Kohath. It was never to be put on a cart. The presence of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament is taken out into the world, not on any kind of thing or method that the world comes up with. The presence of God is taken out into this world as it's carried there by his people. The Bible declares that for us as Christians here tonight, that we are the holy of holies, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when Paul calls us by the Spirit of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, it refers to the holy of holies. We are the holy of holies of God because God Almighty himself lives inside of us by the Holy Spirit. And as wonderful as it is for the message of the gospel to go out in a lot of different ways in the world, the, the most powerful way for the gospel to go out is when it is walked out there, it is carried out there humanly, carried by a person, and, and delivered to people. And so that's what it represents. It was always to be carried. They put it on a cart. Where in the world did they get the idea of transporting the ark on a cart? 
We know exactly where they got the idea from. The Philistines. The Philistines, when they had captured the Ark of the Covenant from the children of Israel, and they learned the hard way that they had defeated God's people, but they had not defeated uh, the people of Israel's God. They had all those tumors and rats and all that kind of stuff, and they tried to send the Ark of the Covenant back to the children of Israel. They didn't know what to do with it. They just wanted to be rid of it. So they built this ar- this cart They put the ark on it, and they just sent the oxen headed toward the children of Israel. This whole idea, this whole means of transportation doesn't come from the Word of God. It comes from the world. Somebody has, I think, very cleverly observed concerning a cart that it's made up of boards and big wheels. Too many ideas about advancing the kingdom of God comes from boards and big wheels. In the body of Christ, we need to go back to the Bible, discover how does God want all of this to be done. And so here is how they determine that they're going to uh, transport it in on this new cart. And so they set the ark of God on the new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill and Uzzah. And Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, they drove the cart. And so they were supervising the transportation and uh, they were uh, should have known what it was that they were involved in. And so they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ohio, he went before the ark, apparently leading the oxen. And uh, Uzzah, he was walking alongside uh, the cart and the ark of the covenant. And. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums and on cymbals. So you can just picture this in your mind. Thirty thousand people. And all of these instruments are playing. They are dancing. They are praising God. They are worshiping God. They are having the time of their life. We are bringing God back to the center of our national life. And so David, as he looks at this whole thing, he has to be thrilled. This looks like it's going to be the greatest day of his life. This is a celebration that is worthy of God. And so uh, this is what's going on. We know their dancing is occurring. I mean, very, very strong, you know, Hebrew dancing from the parallel account in, in First Chronicles chapter 13. And so they're doing it all before the Lord. Their motives are, are right. We're getting back to God. Praise the Lord. Nobody could have accused Israel or David of being indifferent concerning the ark of God as as Saul had been. And then they came to Nashon's threshing floor. And Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark of God. And to, he took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled some kind of a rough spot. had had got the cart tumbling. And then he put his hand up there to, to stop, uh, to, to steady the ark. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against uh, Uzzah. And the Lord struck him there for his heir, and he died there by the ark of God. God brings the whole thing to a screeching halt. Because as much as 
everyone else was enjoying what they were in the middle of. God wasn't enjoying himself. Our worship, our church services, the things that we do for the Lord, they have to be done according to God's word or he doesn't get to enjoy it. It's one of the reasons as we head through the word of God on Sunday morning and Sunday nights and meetings that go on here through the week and all. So often there's that exhortation to live a pure life before the Lord. There's the desire to do things simply here. Sometimes people say, came to church and visited you today and and uh, just wanted to let you know that uh, we enjoyed being here. And I'm able to say to them, if you've been here one time, you've seen what we're about. We point people to God in song and then we point people to God in the word. That's all we're about. And then God takes that anywhere he wants to take that. But if the room gets taken over and and things start to get done in, a, in, in disobedient to God's word or we hit a critical mass as a church body and people are ignoring the importance of purity or holiness and all of us are walking into the room, you know, dabbling in sin, practicing sin and all pretty soon God's going to bring his chastening into that environment because when we assemble together as Christians, our concern supremely is not that we would be blessed, but that he would be blessed. And we can only have a good time, a truly spiritual time. You can have an emotional time without blessing God, just blessing ourselves. But a truly spiritual time has to be one in which God is thoroughly enjoying himself as well as us enjoying the worship of the Lord. And so here is a scene where disobedience to God's word is, is going on. People are enjoying themselves like crazy. God looks at it and says, I can't enjoy it at all because of the disobedience. And so he brings the whole thing to a screeching stop. He struck Uzzah and we notice that he struck Uzzah for his error. And I think that the reference is more to the fact he, no uh, Uzzah was not, nobody was to touch the Ark of the Covenant. That's why there were poles in the holes. That's how it was. To, it was not to be touched. It was to only be touched on the handles and only by those that were allowed to do it. Again, speaking of how holy God is. But I don't think that he was judged simply because he touched the Ark of the Covenant. But God says he judged him for his heir because Uzzah should have known better. He was a Levite and he ought to have known that it was completely irregular. He had access to the Torah, to the law. This was no way to transport the Ark of the Covenant. And, and so he was God holds him responsible for violating the, the, the law when he should have known better. I think that it's very, very likely that the responsibility for the biblical transportation of the ark had been delegated to him and his family by King David. And, uh, and, and having been around the ark of the covenant as much as he had for so many uh, decades, it would have been a good idea on his part to have searched out the law of God by this time to discover how in the world are we supposed to transport this. 
And so David, I think, had delegated that and assumed that this was all moving forward according to the law of Moses. And then all of a sudden, when Uzzah is smitten for his sin here, you can imagine what a, a dampening this put upon the party. Everybody put the kazoos away and put the stringed instruments and the harps and the flutes. And I mean, you I mean, just think about how that thing would have just gone like a wave through the entire crowd. They're just absolutely stunned and shocked by what God has done here, confused. Because what God has done here, and David gets it, is that he has not only smitten Uzzah, but he has publicly humbled David before the people. And David understands it. God is communicating something to David. He doesn't like it at first, but he realizes we have done, I have done something wrong here, and we need to discover what that is in the eyes of God. So the lesson is the right thing needs to be done the right way. The right thing can't be done the wrong way. Their motives were good. They loved God, but unless it was done the right way, God couldn't enjoy it uh, himself. And so uh, God just comes in, you know, drops the hammer here, and, uh, and brings a stop to it. Sometimes people might say, well, uh, why would God overlook the Philistines' use of a cart and not overlook Israel's use of a cart? He holds us to a higher responsibility, accountability. Judgment begins in the house of God, the Bible says. So we know more than the world knows. And so we have he holds us to a to a higher standard. And so the very the importance of obedience. Now, if God had just ignored this and said, well, you know, I mean, they're at least they're getting the ark back to the into Jerusalem and all. And I'll just have to wink at, at the rest of it. it, it the, the reason that God doesn't do that with David here is if he just let this thing go on the way that it, that it was going on, then David and the entire nation would have concluded that obedience is no big deal to God. Or that you obey him in the big things, but you don't have to obey him in the small things. Or you obey him in the end or your goals, but you don't have to obey him in how you get there. And there's a lot of Christians to think that God is like that. You can just you just aim at something good and you just do it any old way you got to. And God's OK with that. And he's not OK with that. And so if God had allowed David to do this, it would have been modeled before the entire nation that, uh, you know, that's all that matters to God is if you if you got the right goal, you can use any old means you want to uh, to to get there. You can lie, you can cheat, you can steal and and God will overlook all of that. But God, I think, in his love for David, he's not going to allow him to begin his reign in this way, because if he does, then that's going to become the way that David does business for the rest of his ministry. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump, the Bible says. God knows how to put a stop to it. So God teaches David. He teaches us. He teaches David right at the beginning of his ministry, his most influential years as a king of Israel. That the right thing needs to be done the right way. And God drives that point home very powerfully to him. Now, 
David's reaction is an interesting one in verse eight. He became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Don't shout out. Have you ever been angry with God? Don't shout out, please. If you ever find or I ever find myself in a place where we are angry with God over what he has done in a situation, we can always be sure it is the anger of ignorance. If God does something like this to put a stop to us, to just pull us up straight in a situation like this, that God is loving and is caring as he is for us, and we can realize God hasn't done something wrong here. I must have done something wrong here. And so David looks at it, and as, as he looks at the whole thing, he doesn't realize that the word of God's been violated at this point. And he looks at it and says, why in the world would God do this to us? Or why would he ruin this great thing that we're, we're trying to, to do here? And I, th- I think it's very important not to remove the passion from the scene. Don't ignore his anger here. It's an important lesson. It's all a part of the scene. What David's going to realize is that the great question of this scene is not why God struck Uzzah, but the great question in all of this is why in the world didn't God strike everybody dead? His pure grace didn't wipe the whole group out for what they were doing. Uzzah's touched the ark, but they're all transporting it on, on a cart. Plenty of grace in any situation that God even, you know, steps up and makes an example of someone in. Now, David moves from his anger and uh, uh, in, in, to a more appropriate emotion. In verse 9, David was afraid. Now he, the fear of the Lord begins to grip him. He was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord Come to me again. Now he has a sense we've done something terribly wrong here and we need to find out how we have been an affront to God on this day. Ultimately, that's where it always comes back to. Don't ever stay in the angry face. Move to the fear of God face that that's more befitting us. So David, in the fear of the Lord, now would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. He put a stop to it right there. He took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. So they moved it into a a private place and abandoned this attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant uh, into Jerusalem at this time. And the Ark of the Covenant remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And in 48 hours, everyone was dead, even the pets and insects. Well, that's not what it says. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Translation, there's nothing wrong with the ark, David. There's something wrong with how you tried to transport the, the ark. And so word was then told King David, hey, we put the ark in the house of Obed-Edom. It's been there for three months. The the Lord has blessed his house and all that belongs to him because of the ark. David, there's nothing wrong with with the ark. Now, we know also again in First Chronicles that what David did, and that's a parallel uh, account of this, this same event here, is that David then commanded the priest to go back to the law and find out. How we're supposed to transport the ark. 
So he initiated that and they went back to the law of Moses to discover how it is that God wanted the Ark of the Covenant to be uh, to be transported. And so David is informed of of all of this. And when he's informed that there's nothing wrong with the ark, the ark is bringing blessing to the environment of the house of Obed-Edom. David has to be thinking to himself, I want the ark of the covenant, the presence of God to not only bless a single household, I want it to bless the whole nation. So he's more than ever, he's eager to bring the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem. And so David went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, and they did it with gladness. So this was a real uh, celebration. Well, what's the old saying? Um, If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. So David, he's not going to allow failure to be the final word in this attempt that he, he makes here. He realizes, all right, I failed here. Now let's try another time and, and do it right. It is very, very important that, that in, in our service to the Lord, that we never allow a failure or, and then even especially a failure that is extraordinarily public, like this one was with David, to ever drive us out of God's call upon our lives. We're going to make mistakes and we're going to fall short. And a lot of what we're going to do is going to happen in a public kind of setting on things. But it doesn't mean that God is, is, is through with us. And so we don't quit because we've made a big mistake. We find out instead what does God call us to do in this situation the next time and then to do it. And so now, now David's moving forward. All of the excitement that's going on. But now this time, so it was, verse 13, when those bearing the Ark of the Covenant, now it's being carried properly. Now you got a good thing being done the right way. It's being uh, done in a way that God can enjoy the whole parade and the whole event also. And when they had bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they'd gone six paces that they sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep, all as a, a part of voluntarily as a part of just their worship to the Lord. And then David danced before the Lord with all his might. You ever seen someone dance with all their might? That's something to behold. Most of us, we only do that like in a really private place. But David here, he just, he's so excited about what's going on here and, and it's working and no one's been killed and it looks like this is going to happen. And he knows now God's heart's being blessed even more than our heart is being blessed. And he's just jumping around and he's dancing and he's just having the greatest <laughs> time. And, and uh, sometimes, it, 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 and for David, the dancing, it, it's just an expression of his heart. Sometimes you go to Israel and you go to the Western Wall, or known as the Wailing Wall, and you'll see the Jews that are, are standing there, usually Orthodox, and they're before the wall and they're doing this as they're saying their prayers to the Lord. And I've been told by uh, different guides that the reason that they're doing that rocking motion is is a demonstration of loving God with all of their heart, all of their mind, all of their soul, and all of their strength. So it's a communication of that. 
David's dancing and jumping with all of his might. He just wants, he just, everything inside of him, everything that he is, he wants to express as a, a way of worship to the Lord. He's wearing a linen ephod, which is kind of a light uh, linen garment that was worn by the priests. And uh, so he's not wearing his royal robes. He's put those aside. He just wants to be a worshiper among worshipers. He doesn't want people looking at him and saying, ah, this is the king and we're and he's on a level different than the rest of us. He puts on a simple garment of, of the priest and he's just enjoying himself. And I think that also says something about David's heart. There are three great offices in that uh, uh, Jewish old covenant. There was the office of uh, the a priest, the prophet and the king. And David bore two of those offices in his calling of God upon his life. He was both a prophet. You read the book of Psalms. And he was a king. But I think David in his heart, and we see it here, David would have readily traded in those two offices to have been a priest. He would have loved for his whole life to be there at the temple or there at the tabernacle and dominated by the worship of the Lord and all of those things. And here on this day, he gets to be as close to a priest as he'll ever get to be. And he is thoroughly enjoying himself. It's fun to watch people who are enjoying their worship uh, of the Lord. So he's dancing, he's wearing the linen ephod, and so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark uh, of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Now, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, David's first wife, looked through a window. Remember, he has a palace at this point in time, and she saw King David. Not honey, not little schnookums. King David. She has a trouble with a king acting this way. She sees King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. We're going to see in a moment that what she was troubled with in her mind is that's not how a king is supposed to conduct himself. And she despises her husband in her heart. The Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If it's in our heart, it's going to come out sooner or later. And with her, it comes out sooner rather than later. She despises, she looks at him and just says, this is a disgrace how he's conducting himself. This is no way for a king to act. And so they brought the ark of the Lord, set it at its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. The temple hasn't been built yet. His son will do that. And then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord, representing their wholehearted commitment to the Lord and, they, and how grateful they are for a relationship with God, fellowship with God. That's what these offerings represented. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, the peace offerings were offerings that you could take a portion of the sacrifice. It was given to God and a portion was returned to the people, to the worshipers. And, and so 
When he had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And so he gave them a benediction, a God bless you, hasn't this been great, whatever he said to them. And then on top of it, he distributed among all of the people, among the whole multitude of Israel. We're talking about at least 30,000, and now you and I have shown up. There's a big crowd, both women and men. Everyone got a loaf of bread. Big slab of meat. God bless you vegetarians. You could give it to me if you want to. I just, there's, there's one on our staff and I, I'm incurable. I re, I'm so ashamed. And they were also given a cake of raisins. That's Old Testament for dessert. And so all the people departed, everyone to his house. And what David is saying and giving the people all of this food is he's saying, listen, let's not let this celebration stop now. Let's take the afterglow of this great, great day in our history and let's take it into our homes and into our families and let's continue the celebration there. And then David returned and then noticed with the desire of blessing his own household. This has been the greatest day of his life, bar none. He is so excited and he is so happy over what has happened. And his only desire in his heart is to now take his portion of bread and meat and raisins to take them back to the palace to be with his family and now for him to enjoy and to kind of re-talk through and re-experience all of the events of the day. And wasn't this, I mean, there's a, the next greatest thing to experience the event is to go over it with people that you love. He's not done with this day. He's looking forward to a whole evening of just celebrating with his loved ones and his family. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. She is so disgusted by him. She can't even let him get in the door before she starts to unload on him. She goes outside and begins to speak to him. And she said, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David comes in and he's just expecting to have the greatest time with his family and and to enjoy all of it. And before he can even get into his house, she comes out and you could hardly group a series of more painful things to say to a person on a day like this and to a person who loves the Lord than what she says here. And basically, she is saying to David, you made the biggest fool out of yourself today that you could have ever imagined. You didn't act like a king at all today, the way you conducted yourself out there. 
You think everybody's going to their homes with the afterglow of this great event? They're going to their homes to talk about what a fool you made of yourself. Dancing around in that linen ephod the way that you did, acting just like a commoner. And I mean, it's just one stab after another that comes out of this woman's heart. Now, David had not, and sometimes people misunderstand this, he hadn't been immodest in any way. What troubled her is that David had danced and walked and jumped for ten miles without his kingly robes on. And she had an expectation of a king that David didn't meet. Well, where'd she get her expectations of a king if David didn't meet those expectations? There'd only been one other king. And that was her father. David wasn't acting like her father. And so she shames him and makes him feel stupid for the decision that he had made. Every single word just designed to really, really hurt him. Now, no one likes to be mocked in life. Not in any area of life. But no one likes to be mocked in the most important area of their life. Nobody likes to be mocked concerning their worship of the Lord. We can disagree in terms of personality. I see people do things in their worship of the Lord. Things have to be done decently in order. I'm not talking about that. But I see in the public assembly, you can do whatever you want in your living room or in the shower. You can dance like crazy. Nobody knows but the Lord, and he'll enjoy it. He knows how to interpret all that. But we all have different personalities. And because I'm not a dancer, not only can't I dance, I don't want to dance. <laughs> I did all my dancing at the tri-school dances in junior high to realize this person can't dance. So we just left all that behind. But I got a dancer inside. I really do. There's somebody inside of me that can sing all those Motown songs. So it's a funny kind of combination. So people have lots of different styles. And we have to be very careful to respect that what they're doing as unto the Lord and what they need to do to, rep, to express their worship to the Lord, to be very careful not to criticize that or to put that down. There's wonderful diversity in the body of Christ in that vein, and there's great liberty uh, related to all of that. Now, so she takes and, and, and scorns him, and no one likes to be scorned. I have to assume that women don't like to be scorned either, but I do know that men don't like to be scorned. They don't like to be disrespected. There's hardly a thing that a wife can do that is more damaging in a marriage relationship than to disrespect or to mock her husband in this way, and especially his relationship with the Lord. The Bible gives us two commandments as in terms of, uh, marriage and in and, and our marriage relationship. The husband is given one command, that is that he is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. 
The wife is then told that she is to respect or to reverence her her husband, to show him respect. And I think one of the reasons that God gives those two commands is he knows that each one of the sexes needs that. They respond to that. A woman responds to love. She needs love from her husband. But a husband needs the respect of her wife, of his his wife. And she takes and she just does the world's worst thing here and and making David feel like a fool. And again, making him feel like a fool in the area where he's he's most vulnerable. Nothing was as important to David as his relationship with the Lord. One of the things I think that's important in our in our relationships, in our marriage relationships, and Michael, again, this, this can be a whole study on marriage because David is going to blow it in just a second now. He gets really, he gets upset with her, too, and, uh, and, 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 and responds to her provocation. One of the things that happens uh, when we've been married probably over 48 hours is that we know things about the other person that should die with us. Nobody else should ever know those things. Those are private things. We have conversations with our husband, with our wife. They bear their heart, their soul, their bodies to us in a way that doesn't happen anywhere else in life. We know them ultimately Inside and out. And that knowledge is a wonderful knowledge to have. It's a beautiful intimacy in a marriage. But it also equips us and gives us something to do damage and harm to that person that no one else would be able to do to that person in all of their life. And she takes and she uses this against David. And we must never, ever ever be guilty of that using what we know and makes our spouse vulnerable on the basis of that knowledge to ever use it against them. Well, David's response to all of this in 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 her, uh, you know, going after him in this way, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord that I did this. In other words, I didn't do this. For the young maidens, I didn't do this for the 30,000 that were with me. I didn't do this for anyone but God. You think I danced and I jumped and I sang and I played with all of my heart because I was trying to do that for some part of this audience of 30,000. I was completely lost in God. The old saying, an audience of one. That's what that's where David was in all of this. This was completely to the Lord. I wasn't concerned about what the maidens thought or anybody else thought. That may be how you operate in your relationship with God and your worship. But that wasn't a part of what I was. It was before the Lord. And then now David gets a little dig in. Who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. You are comparing me to your father. And God replaced your father as king because of his utter lack of spirituality and his un, 
willingness to be obedient to God. You should find a different standard to hold me to, a different standard for defining what is right in the eyes of God. And so he rebukes her for comparing him to her father. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. So this tells us he was on one of those instruments and, and having a great time. And he knew we know he could do it because he calmed Saul's, uh, Saul when he was under the demonic attack. And therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And I will be even more in, undignified than this. All of this dancing and celebrating that you think was so terrible. And I will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Michael, what you don't understand is that what I did out there is an extension of my relationship with the Lord. Has not hurt how the people will esteem me as king at all. But because you don't have a spiritual side to your life, and clearly she didn't. You don't realize that something wonderful happened in their lives between me and them and me as their king. They enjoyed what it was that, that they, they saw and they respect it in a leader. This is the kind of king that they want, even if that's not the kind of king or husband that you want. And therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And so David never uh, went in from that time forward and uh, never had sexual relationships with Michael again. And so she died uh, childless as, as it relates to David's relationship with her. That was a shame in the culture. And uh, so David uh, might have been wanting to shame her. There's also uh, what David was probably doing in all of this by not going into her sexually and having relationships with her, he's leaving absolutely no possibility that he will ever produce a child with her and, and no possibility of uniting the house of Saul and the house of David through a child coming from David and Michael. And so maybe David saw that coming. He didn't want a son uh, to rule coming from so unspiritual a mother as Michael and uh, and to create that kind of confusion. And so he said, I'll just nip that at the bud and make sure that that uh, that doesn't happen. And that isn't something that we face as a nation. So we'll stop there tonight and we'll pick things up in chapter seven. It's an important lesson, familiar territory for many of you and the many of you tonight. It's the first time you've ever been through this chapter, but it speaks a lot to us about our personal relationships. I think that the one of the great things that that uh, I didn't mention that I do want to mention concerning Michael. In the body of Christ. If a person becomes a mocker or a scorner of other people's worship of the Lord and other people's uh, relationship with the Lord they will end up spiritually exactly the way that Michael ended up physically here. And that is they will end up isolated and they will end up fruitless. If you have in your heart by nature a critical spirit, a tendency to mock 
the sincere worship of other people. You have to be careful of that and repent of that. Because if that goes unchallenged in your life, it'll be months down the road or years down the road and you'll turn around and you won't have a friend in the world. You'll be living your Christian life all alone because no one will ever want to make themselves vulnerable to you because they'll be afraid that you will then do to them what they've heard you do to others. It, a critical spirit, and it's the craziest thing, because people that possess this, it takes the Lord to open up our eyes that we have it. And, and everybody has it a little bit, and God has a way of softening us through the years But so often a person ends up isolated. Nobody ever calls. Nobody wants anything to do with them. All of this kind of thing. And they can't for the life of them realize what's happened to them and that they've done it to themselves. And then they only compound the problem by considering it to be everybody else's fault. They never look at it and say, I have driven every single person away from me because of how I mock people and make fun of them because of some some vulnerable thing that I have seen them do or something that I disagree with. And so tonight in this passage, it's a very, very important passage and it's a temptation that we deal with all of the time. We must always do the right thing in the right way if we want God to enjoy himself. If we want God to look at our lives and enjoy what he sees. And there's tremendous pressure on us to go different from that. But this passage wonderfully and powerfully drives home that lesson. I just pray tonight that by God's Holy Spirit, every time We need to be reminded that the right thing needs to also be done in the right way. Tax time is coming. Whatever it is, however large, however small, that God will remind us of this passage and keep our lives in a place that are a blessing to us, but also bring pleasure to him. If the worship team would come up, I'd like them to lead us in a couple of worship songs before we close here this evening and just